Hey everyone, you're listening to the Simple Electronics Podcast. I'm Dan from the Simple Electronics YouTube channel. And with me today, I've got a very special guest. And I will try to pronounce his name. It is James Van Kessel. Yeah, that's pretty close. Yeah, James Van Kessel. Ah, Thank you. I appreciate that because (laughs) honestly, I I only rehearsed it the one time and then I forgot all about it because, you know. You did pretty good. You did pretty good. Well, I appreciate it. So I know a little bit about you. We um, we chatted on Twitter a little bit, but for the viewers out there, can you let everyone know who you are, what you do, where we might know you from? Yeah, so uh, I'm Jamie from Kessel. Uh, I work as a, as a software architect for Ultimaker, and specifically I work as the software architect of uh, Kira, the 3D slicer. And I've been doing that for, oh, I think almost nine and a half years now. So I've been with Ultimaker from uh, the very early start when uh, the company just graduated from somebody's garage. Uh, and yeah, you know, we started in this uh, this building where uh, we had to put like pots and pans around to uh, to keep the water from leaking in. Um, yeah, so, you know, that's, that's where I started and uh, yeah, I'm still working there. And I have to say, um, on behalf of the 3D printing community, who I don't really speak for, um, but... Thank you very much for a awesome free piece of software. I've recently started using Prusa Slicer for one a very difficult um, 3D printer that I have here. And I was going to try it because I've been using Cura from the get-go. I was going to try it out, but I have to, to bring all my, 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 my machines over. Whereas in Cura, they were there already. They, they had presets. So, so as... Someone who was a beginner not that long ago, I have to thank you very much for putting way more models into your slicer to get people like me started much yeah. quicker. So I, I love to take sort of credit for that, but uh, well, I, I can to some degree, but most of the, the, the 3D printers that are in Cura are actually from community contributions. So, you know, uh, I from the get-go pushed very hard to make like this uh, this this uh, this configuration file based setup for all the 3d printers in Cura that made all of that possible but the fact that we have you know literal hundreds of machines in there uh, you know I just built the system I didn't provide you know any of those settings Ultimaker just provides the the setting files for you know the Ultimaker machines and we put a lot of money and effort into tweaking them but for yeah for all of the other machines, can't really take that credit. No, and it's not it's not a thing about credit though, but it's no. just uh, it's something about the organizational philosophy that I appreciate. Like um, the community, the maker community will often take care of itself, but it still needs yeah. the tools in order to do that. So, yeah. so people like you um, steer these decisions. I I know that you yeah. have a voice in these decisions, and this is what I'm very appreciative. Oh for. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean it's. Uh, I mean, to call it that, that is, of course, that's a decision that needed to be defended is perhaps also a bit much. But um, I think it's the same as sort of, you know, sort of to draw the analogy with a relationship. Uh, even though that you're very happy together, it still means that you got to work on it. Um, and that, of course, has always been a thing uh, within any company. Uh, you got to keep the spirit alive and this this notion on, on why do we do things the way that we do. And that, of course, that does take work, yeah. Absolutely. And you are, you have a coding background, right? You were telling me in the green room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, 
So originally, I, uh, my bachelor was in media technology. So that was a pretty broad education. And, uh, and I started to do that because uh, originally I actually wanted to go into game development. Um, but, you know, when I, when I started, there wasn't really a game industry in the Netherlands. So I kind of wanted to hedge my bets. So I went with uh, uh, had something that was a bit broader. So um, it, it, it had game design and game, you know, development uh, and all that kind of stuff in it. But it also had like human uh, technology interaction, but also broadcasting um, uh, in it. But, you know, during that time, I quickly realized that, you know, although it's, it's nice to know something about all of those other things, my passion was definitely within uh, software engineering. Um, and yeah, so for my master, I went on to the university and then... Um, because in the Netherlands, we've got this weird system where, you know, we've got different types of universities, but all of them give you a bachelor. I, I won't bore anyone with the details. Uh, so I, I went on to the, uh, the university and I did, um, oh, what's it called again? Uh, game and media technology. Um, and that's where, that's also how I ended up with Ultimaker uh, for my graduation thesis, where, uh, where I worked at Ultimaker to develop a, a structured light scanner. Nice. Actually, I'm I'm always curious. What's it like working for a company like Ultimaker? Are they? I mean, they seem very tech forward, and they seem very um, uh, maker focused. Is this is this how it works inside the organization, or is that just kind of their public face? Well, I mean, I mean, it, it it's not really a surprise that Ultimaker, of course, used to be much more maker centered than it is right now, right? So, I mean, you know, back. Back in the day when we started, um, we've had, you know, we had just the Ultimate Original, which was clearly not a product that was in any way intended for a business, right? It, you know, it, it was this plywood kit that you had to assemble yourself. And, you know, it took most people like 80, 16 hours to do that. And it required a lot of tweaking. And we still had like public wiki pages that explained you how to do it. Um, but of course, you know, over time we did drift towards more and more, more of like a, a business to business company and then mostly focusing on like, you know, the, the smaller um, or the, the medium sized, you know, companies or and mostly it's, it's what Ultimaker calls the sort of the desktop printing side of things. So not there you have like this printer that, you know, is on wheels and is almost like a yeah, an entire cupboard on its own, but you can actually put in your desk. Um, but of course, yeah, you know, uh, I mean, in a company that, you know, when I started nine years ago, it was like 18 people and now it's like 300. Uh, it, it will go through phases and changes quite a lot. <laughs> oh, absolutely. But yeah. like, even so, like, okay, so I guess Ultimakers, they're a bit of an upmarket product these days. They're, yeah. they're definitely, they're, yeah. I mean... Let's be honest. There, there are no Ender three. Oh yeah, but I mean, they're not the same thing at all. We we quickly realized that we can't really participate to you know the race to the bottom. You're That's just, right. You're gonna lose that. Especially, yeah, of course. Um, but I think they're still fairly uh, accessible for makers because I don't think like something like the S three. I mean, yeah. we're not talking about five figures here we're talking about four figures yeah and when i started being interested in 3d printers back in like 2006 ish yeah. i mean that was the price of a like five figures was the price of a put it your put it together yourself type kit 
you know, from parts everywhere on the internet. So it's not like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not I like mean, it's out of range of a maker. It's just that it's, I, I understand yeah. that the business sales might be a little bit more, uh, yeah, 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 a bigger yeah. part of the business. These well, days. and of course, if you also have to compete, right? It, so if, if your printer is literally 10 times as expensive as another printer, um, it's 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 a tough sell, right? And then especially towards a maker where uh, I've often also uh, told people when they ask me like, hey, what printer should I get? And I'm like, yeah, as a maker, maybe not an Ultimaker because, you know, your time is free. And I think that's the main difference, right? If your time is free, by all means, get, get a kit that requires a lot of tinkering because, you know, yeah, your time's free, right? So why would you pay money to get time in return that's just not really a good investment i would say it's not, it's not a good trade-off is i guess Correct. what i'm trying to say right absolutely and also from the tinkering i think you you can also learn quite a bit as frustrating as it of course might be if it's failing yeah typically i i recommend printers like basically i say you shouldn't listen to me because i'm a cheap ass but yeah. but what i say is if you have a relatively high tolerance for tinkering then you get yourself an Ender 3. If you have a low tolerance for tinkering, then you get yourself like a Prusa. And yeah. then if you have like something that just critically needs to work, that's when I say you need to step up to something like the Ultimakers. Like yeah. if the if the thing is critical, that timelines are critical, you need a machine that that has that sort of criticalness built in. I still think the the Prusas might be able to achieve that, but I mean it's different. They're open. They're not in a you know, they're not in a, um, a in a fully enclosed volume. They don't have, you know, options for air exchanging and stuff like that. It's yeah. just not the same class of printer. Yeah, and then also if, if you look at in the case of Ultimaker, the amount of print profiles that you can get, for instance, due to the marketplace is also is also really big, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, so... Yeah, I mean that's that's also it's it's a it's also a lively discussion, of course, in the in the, in, in in you know the three D printing world. You know, is it the slicer? Is it the settings? It's 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 both really, and that's that's I think also something that's very underestimated by a lot of the makers. Whereas they say, oh yeah, I got this thing to print with Cura, and I, I didn't got this to print with Prusa slicer, or of course the other way around. And in most cases, it's just, you know, how well did you tune it and how well did the defaults match uh, with what you wanted to do? Uh, or even the tolerances that you induced by by putting together your, your printer, right? Some, yeah, yeah. Some people don't even have a flat enough surface to ensure yeah. a square build. Yeah, yeah, that too. And of course, it could even be that uh, they're... I like to call this the waterbed problem, right? So every time you press somewhere, you know, the water pops up somewhere else. And that's also a thing, of course, with slicing. You could very well have that certain bugs because, you know, any sufficiently complicated piece of software is going to have bugs. There are no exceptions to that. So it could very well be that you have certain bugs that either accidentally remove certain negative behaviors in the hardware or the firmware of your printer or, of course, amplify it. Uh, and then that's even further aggravated by that certain settings can also influence whether or not certain bugs actually pop up, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, I yeah. totally get that. Uh, especially yeah. like I have, like I said, I have this difficult printer. A company sent me a printer for review, but mm -hmm. it's not a, a company that anybody knows. Yeah. And on uh, Cura, no matter what I did, I changed so many settings. I probably I have like uh, like thirty benchies 
off yeah, this yeah, thing. Yeah. And I just couldn't get this thing to print well. It would always layer shift. It would do all sorts of weird things. And all the belts are tight. I had no idea. I switched to Prusa Slicer. Yeah. And it works flawlessly, except now it pauses between layers. Like, I'm, I'm just, huh. I haven't, yeah, I don't know. I haven't gotten down to it to, it, to diagnose it. If it's it, layer like, it's shifts, so I might actually know what it is. Oh, I'm listening. Yeah, so so Cura is is one of the few slicers that has uh, acceleration and jerk control to the extent that it does. Uh, so weird acceleration settings, right? That means, and especially the jerk, means that you're putting a lot of like sort of sudden stops and starts to it. So if you have layer shifts, it might be an indication of that, right? So because you're you're just giving it like a bunch you're giving your head a punch all the time and that's of course the moment where if the pulleys are not completely right or etc cetera, etc cetera, where you can start shifting uh, i have played with the acceleration uh, and the jerk settings yeah. in both directions and I even uh, move them in yeah. opposite directions of each other and yeah. for whatever reason this <laughs> like this printer is i don't know it might be cursed i i actually told the the uh the company that they need to check into the firmware but they basically they shipped me an old version of Cura, a very mm -hmm. old version of Cura, uh, which I couldn't I couldn't take off of the USB drive because oh. it was uh, corrupted. Oof! And so I used the current version of Cura and yeah, then yeah, set yeah. up a profile and and all this stuff because it's an unknown printer. Right. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So then I was troubleshooting, troubleshooting, and I was just like, oh my god, I'm gonna try. I I opened up their G code they sent as a example, which prints just uh -huh. fine, yeah. and it was. It was sliced in an old version of Prusa Slicer, but I'm like, uh -huh. why would you send me Cura if <laughs> Prusa is what you've sliced uh, your demo? Anyways, I, I, I've seen this so often at conventions where people clearly use prints, uh, companies showing prints that were clearly not printed on their machine. Oh, definitely. I, I've seen that so often, and then you know, we we used to actually make a game out of it where we were just like sort of asking all these annoying questions at like salespeople who knew nothing about 3D printing and then asking them like, oh, so, and how, how is this printed then? Like pretending to not know. I've even seen it as far as where they had SLA prints on, on, an, on an FFF printer. Yikes. And I was like, oh, no, he did it. But I, I've seen it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what kind of stuff do you have you coded in Cura? Because you've worked on Cura quite a bit, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, on and off. Uh, I've, I've also done other projects within Ultimaker. So I've also developed a structured light scanner. Uh, unfortunately, it, it, at a certain point, the, the project was uh, put on hold or, you know, indefinitely on hold. Um, but I also did firmware for a while. Uh, but yeah, I mean, bunch of stuff that I coded in Cura. Yeah, lots of things, really. Um yeah. So there's new lightning supports, right? Is that, yeah, that no, new? that no, that wasn't that wasn't one of mine. That was actually um, that's two of my colleagues did that, and that was actually also the result of um, of what we call within Ultimaker Hackathon. So um, that's sort of loosely inspired on the uh, the, tem the the famous ten percent rule uh, that a few companies have, or you know, in varying degrees. And then every so often we have a, a big hackathon where uh, where uh, we're originally people from R and D, but now we're we're um, expanding into the entire company. We're basically uh, so people just have to pitch an idea, and then only so the rest of the colleagues can only give like feedback on it, but nobody actually gets to tell you whether or not the project can actually go ahead, as long as it has 
value for the company. Uh, so that, that would be the only reason why people can say, no, 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 you're not allowed to do that. But other than that, even if nobody else believes you, if you think it's a good idea to work on it, you know, here's the time, go and prove it to us. Uh, and, you know, the Lightning Infill was one of those projects. And uh, I'm also very happy to, uh, to see that uh, we also managed to incorporate it into, uh, into mainline Cura. Yeah, that's that's actually it's pretty sweet. I have not got a chance to try it yet. I have been um, I've been doing a lot of uh, sort of hardline modeling. So yeah. I've been designing the updated parts for my three D printed snow speeder, which was yeah. all sliced. The version one was all sliced on uh, Cura, an older version of Cura, and yeah. the current one um, is on this version of uh, I think I'm at four point. I don't know. It's rel- It's relatively new. 4.1, 4.12.0. Yeah. And the thing is, when I'm in the middle of a project, I have this thing where I do not update any software. That's it's just it's smart. me before. <laughs> yeah. But but you know, uh, we we put considerable effort in making sure that you can run multiple Cure versions side by side because you know in the in the old days you couldn't. Uh, we really noticed that made people very antsy, especially of course to, to try out beta versions. Um, because of course, because we support so many printers, it's it's you know it, it, it's it's impossible, of course, to, to print or to print to test everything. Uh, so we really rely on, of course, yeah, community to, to test these kind of things. Uh, so we put a lot of effort in making sure that you can run versions side by side. Because yeah, otherwise, yes, nobody would ever try something out, and then you get into Sketch Twenty Two. Like you need people to try it out to get good software, but you know nobody's going to try it. If it's not good software, so yeah, yeah, I I guess this would be a good point in the podcast uh, for you to maybe explain what a slicer actually does. I mean, you and yeah. I, oh, well, I have a vague idea. Yeah, well, I have yeah, a yeah. decent idea what it does. <laughs> you probably have a very good idea what it yeah. does. But some of my listeners, they're not into three D printing, so maybe yeah. you can tell us what Cura actually does for yeah. a hobbyist three D so printer. I'm 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 first gonna start off with a with a bit of a bombshell here. A slicer is a complete misnomer for what a slicer does. So we, uh, you know, we as a, I don't know, society is perhaps a bit too much of a, of a bold claim to make, but we should have never called it a slicer, right? The slicing is, is, is actually referring to, you know, cutting the 3D model up in these, these thin um, horizontal planes, right? But that's, that's the smallest part of what a slicer is actually doing. So, but you know what? What essentially all the slicers are doing is they're they're cutting it up like a sort of a layered cake, right? And they, they make these 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 two D polygons. Uh, and the main reason for that is is simplicity, right? So you cut a model up into two D shapes, and that's mostly because you know the math regarding looking at two D shapes is just so much easier. And then once you have these two D shapes, you basically go to something that I like to call the lawnmower problem, and that's basically you know. Given a lawn, how do I drive my lawnmower over it in, you know, an as efficient and, and in quite often also as appealing uh, way possible? Uh, but of course, you know, with 3D printing, you have a number of extra problems because you're not cutting something away with a lawnmower. You're trying to uh, place something. Like lay, you know, when yeah. people uh, see those those bundles of rolled up grass, this is kind of yeah. what you're doing with 3D printer. You're trying to, you know put as much grass down as efficiently as possible yeah. per 2D shape. Yeah. And you'd also do these weird things where you control where the head 
you know, you can, it's user controllable that you don't want the, the molten uh, plastic to go over the outside lines, for example. Yeah. So you see that on, on your model. Yeah, but, but, you know, that's also where, of course, it gets really interesting because um, it's not just a computer science problem, right? It's, 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 and it's also not just a chemistry or, a, or you know, uh, a material problem. And it's not just a, a mechatronics problem either. It is the, the combination of all of the above. Because, of course, different plastics, they behave differently, especially on different temperatures. Um, so, you know, all of those things combined, that's what makes a good 3D print. And that's also, of course, you know, what, what makes it so incredibly tricky. Because if you have a great slicer, but you have a rubbish hardware and really bad material, there's no way that you're going to get a good print. And, you know, you can make any combination where one of them is rubbish and you're just going to get a rubbish result. Absolutely. And then you've got um, people like Billy Rubin, for example, that start exploiting the slicer's yeah. uh, code to try to make aesthetic, you know, bottom and top layers now, because now she wants to lay the, 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 the bead down in a yeah. certain direction. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, got, yeah. In the maker community, you've got all kinds of people. And Cura kind of has to be okay for all yeah. of that. So we actually have a very funny story about that. So at a certain point, we found a bug in the Cura engine where if you would have two models that were overlapping, then it would uh, print both of them, right? But that would obviously cause all kinds of issues, right? Because then hey, you were printing with two different colors and then has said that you accidentally made a mistake and two objects were overlapping. So it would print on the same piece twice, and obviously you can't. So, you know, it would get all kinds of pressure in the nozzle because it would be trying to push material out and it couldn't. And then, of course, that would, at a certain point where it it had the first moment where it moved outside of the thing you were printing again, then suddenly all that material would burst out. So you would get all kinds of horrible results from that. So we were very pleased with ourselves that, that you know, oh, we found that issue when we fixed it. So we did that, and then we got a very mad user saying, yeah... I was trying to print these, these Squirtle models and I have like yellow and blue on my printer and I was using this bug for the pieces that I want to print it in green because he would add the model twice and then print one of them at 50% flow and the other one 50% flow and then the no both of the nozzles would actually mix the color on the build plate to get green and that way he could use a dual color printer to get three colors. And we That's were awesome. so impressed by that that I, I swear, I mean, I, I can still remember talking to that about my colleagues and we were like, we have to put this shit back. So we actually added a, an entire new like sort of setting that allows you to define the behavior on what it should do if if it overlaps. Uh, and interesting enough, like later on, it also spawned a whole bunch of people who were dying, trying to do all kinds of other crazy things by trying to get like materials to stick together and then what kind of strategies would you need if something doesn't want to stick and then you try to layer them one layer on another uh, or, you know, different kinds of patterns to make sure that to materials that really don't want to stick together that you can still get them to stick together. So, you know, that was a, that was a really happy little accident. <laughs> but that was mostly because somebody was doing something crazy that we didn't know about and got a bit upset that we suddenly removed the capability even though we didn't even know that. We saw it as a bug, really, and it was a bug if, if you look at it. Yeah. That's actually that's actually hilarious. Yeah. Um, and there's one thing that I appreciate that most of probably all slicers do um, that it wouldn't have happened if it was developed by a company like Apple first is yeah. that 
I want two things out of my software. One yeah. is I want it to be simple. Yeah. And two, I want it to get out of my way if I want to make changes. Yeah. And I'm just looking at the Cura UI right now because I'm, I'm talking to you. Yeah. But you can select, right, whether you want a simplified version or yeah. a complicated version. So yeah. if I'm a beginner or if I'm uh, counseling a beginner, I can say download Cura, you know, yeah. put it on the PLA recommended settings, give it a try. Yeah. Or if the if I know they have a specific machine, I can be like, look, you're printing on glass, you probably want a brim so put or, or a skirt. So add a skirt yeah. to it. And these things are simple, simple enough to change as long as you sort of know a little bit about it. So you can come in as a total beginner, set everything on the default, and you probably will have a good print. And then later on, as you your skill grows, the software is the exact same. You yeah. don't have to you don't have to upgrade software. It's one software for yeah. kind of everyone. So I have to. That to, was very intentional on our side to do it like that. It That's was also awesome. it was also a big fight. I have to say, like um, it was uh, especially the amount of settings that we have. Uh, that was a uh, we, we've we've had varying. Uh, we have of course varying uh, um, UI people and UXers working on this, and this was something that they that was often a point of contention where they, of course, felt that uh, simplifying was the thing to go. And we were mostly like, yeah, that is true. But you know what's more annoying than a piece of software that I don't understand? is a piece of software that I understand and it doesn't let me do what I know needs to be done. So frustrating. And that that has been sort of... I, 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 yeah, calling it a fight is perhaps also... It's also putting this this negative load on it, but that has been sort of like there's been a lot of friction there. Whereas we went like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, we need to make steps to make it understandable and simple. But we're not at the the point where it's as, as easy as you know 2D printing. And then I even have to say I always fight with 2D printers and not so much with 3D printers. So right, yeah, that's but true. Good UI can make a difficult task easier. But that's not the same as as being able to make it easy. And I, th I think it, it sounds like a sort of nuance there, but it's a big difference, really. <laughs> no, I I get it because leave it to bad software to make an easy task difficult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's entirely what it is. I mean, yeah. I used to play. I mean, I, since high school, I played World of Warcraft, for example, and I took a yeah, break yeah. Uh, a couple of years ago, and I got back into it uh, last year. And the the simplification of the game had ruined it for me. Like everything just became so like yeah. it felt like they rounded all the all the edges. But for someone that was returning from a more complex game, I felt like I wasn't playing anymore. I felt like the game was was playing itself. So every little thing that I wanted to do, the game was fighting me on. And it's like, come on, yeah. guys, like stop this. And I'm really happy that makers made slicing software because if you know yeah. if someone like apple and i'm throwing apple under the bus here oh yeah, yeah yeah if you know if someone like apple would have made slicing software you would yeah. upload your your object file to it and then it would print you well, wouldn't there, you, there wouldn't be any like settings to tweak it would yeah, there are slicers print. out there to do that right um but yeah i mean that's also like because kira wasn't started by ultimaker right it's sort of 
Ultimaker just adopted Kira. Correct. Like we, we didn't start it. It was, it was started by, by Dade. Uh, and he started in his own time because he was just, you know, fed up with, uh, he was just fed up with the, the slicers at the moment. Um, because then, yeah, you pretty much had like Skeenforge and oh my God, Skeenforge was horrible, right? I mean, we learned a lot from it, but it was so slow. It was so slow, right? It, it, it generally took you the same amount to, to, to slice something as it took you to print something. So the first versions of Kira that, that when Kira didn't have its own engine, we still used we used Skyforge. And then we actually had a functionality in Kira where you could queue slices, right? So you could prepare a slice and then put it on a queue. So it would be done when you could start your next print. Uh, and that's that's something that we can we can't even re- really imagine anymore being so slow. But it, it often took like eight hours or something to slice like a complex model or something. The dark ages. Yeah, it was really dark ages because the entire slicer was written in Python. And now I love Python as a as a as a, as a coding language, but that's the wrong decision to make. <laughs> What's it written in now? I'm I'm assuming it, some version of C. Yeah, so the 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 engine is in C plus plus, but the the entire front end is in or well entire the front end is in Python, but parts of it are written in C plus plus with with bindings towards Python. Um, and and the main reason that we went for Python is mostly speed of development. Uh, Python is 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 a really forgiving and and fast language to code in, even if it's not the fastest language to run. Uh, so we also wanted to prevent premature optimization, uh, right? So, um, so what we did is we generally had, we, we build it in Python and then if we find bottlenecks, we try and f- fix those specific bottlenecks. And then in some cases, then move some of the code over to C++. That makes sense. C++ yeah. runs a lot closer to bare metal than, than Python. Yeah. I think. And of course, and Python also has uh, this thing called a global interpreter lock. So it can't ever be truly multi-threaded. Uh, oh, interesting! I didn't yeah. realize that. No, yeah. Well, I mean, it can have multiple threads, but only one of them will be running at the same time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, are you saying that um, that Kira slices on more than one thread? Or- yeah, the engine does, but not on Mac. <laughs> oh, damn. Yeah, because uh, uh, yeah, I mean, people told me that I shouldn't be so mad at 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 at, at Apple all the time. But uh, I mean, Apple is great for consumers, but it's a nightmare for developers. It's it's almost like they actively are trying to make the lives of developers hard. I think developing for Apple is probably the thing that costs us the most effort. If if I look at all the operating systems, yikes! Yeah. Well, they're a bit of a walled garden, aren't they? They're... Well, if only that. But um, you know, for. Recently, we were actually looking into making sure that we could also do multi-threaded slicing to a degree because you can't really do everything uh, in slicing multi-threaded because a large part of it is also is, is inherently sequential. You have to wait on the results of the previous layer. So, you know, you can't really do everything multi-threaded, but there's some parts that you can make multi-threaded. And then we recently found out that, you know, the standard uh, compiler for... OS X, Clang, didn't support things in the C++17 standard, even though that they claim that they support the C++17 standard, they just don't implement everything. So it's it's not that we don't want to, it's just, again, you know, that's a bit of software where you know it can do it because all the other compilers can do it, but it just won't let you. And it's so frustrating. Has there been... Um a bit of a programming push to um, make it compatible with the 
Apple M1 silicon or has the Yeah, so that's 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 yet another thing where I, I dislike the way that Apple does business. Because as far as I see it, you know, the, the thing that they launched and it's 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 in, in a sense also laudable that they, they dare make such a big change, right? But on the other hand, they also have of course the reputation and sort of the you know the force of of you know who the fuck they are, right? I mean, they're the largest company in the world, right? I mean, or at least you know, highest valued, at least, yeah. And it, at least also, of course, in reputation, right? So if they say something that something is is ready for prime time, and it's not, who do you think they're going to believe? Yeah, of course. And that's also the thing that what happened with the M1, right? So they said, oh, we make this Rosetta Stone, and then everything will work. Okay, cool, but it didn't. It doesn't. I, absolutely. And then. And then, you know, uh, some of the things that we did don't work. And then a lot of people get mad. Oh, you need to fix that. I was like, uh, yeah, I understand that, but it's a lot of work, man. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, yeah. We're, we're working on that. But, yeah, we also had to wait. And, of course, you know, libraries that we depend on. And then, of course, once they're done, that's the moment when we can start. <laughs> so, you know, then you have this sort of serial process where, you know, one thing is waiting on the other, and only then that other process can start. And then you have huh? so it's this sort of weakest link chain. But you know, we can finally start on getting the M1 stuff fixed. Um, so you know, if if all goes well, uh, knocking on wood here, uh, it should be for the 5.0 release that uh, we will uh, be able to officially support the M1. Yeah. Oh, nice. And yeah, just for anybody not following, um, I'm a little bit of a tech nerd. But the Apple uh, Apple used to run on Intel silicon, so they used to have uh, Intel CPUs in all their products, and then they moved on to make their own silicon called the M1. And now, very but shortly, it's, it's the ARM two. It's yeah, ARM. it is ARM based. That's true. Yeah. It is licensed uh, ARM stuff, but it's yeah. not quite though. It's it's well, it is ARM, but they're it's their own yeah. weird performance versus uh, efficiency architecture allegedly. Within ARM. Allegedly, yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I I don't know, right? We have to just take their word for it. Um, yeah, yeah, and you then, know better than yeah. me. I'm not. And a then they have this compatibility layer, which they call Rosetta, where you can use Intel-based instructions. And then allegedly, like you know, the Rosetta Stone, it should fully translate that, but you know, it's super hard to do that. And you know, uh, even a company like Apple, you know, didn't manage to get it to work in all cases. Yeah, and we're talking about a uh, you know hundred billion dollar a year revenue company. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it's. I mean, there's challenges out there, yeah. and even for the like, I think everyone's saying you know 2022 is the year of Linux, and uh, Linux is working on their own sort of, um, uh, especially uh, uh, graphics wise. They're they're doing a DirectX to Vulkan sort of yeah like a, like direct compatibility thing that they're doing. It's it's. I mean, it's ridiculous right now what's what's happening with uh, like basically. I, I mean, open source and yeah. and closed source projects. Like, there's a lot. Of, there's a lot happening at the moment. Yeah. But do you think, like, how? Why is Ultimaker still supporting Cura? Because I don't really see a, a profitability in it. Like, I don't well, see it's. They're not making money off Cura. No, no, no. Obviously, we're they're not. paying. No. And they're paying people like you. Yeah, to, they're to paying quite a few people quite a lot of money to do this. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a, it's a big uh, it's a big investment for Multimaker to do that. So, uh, 
And you know, it's not makers that are buying the machines. No, like, no, like like no, we said, right? No, no. So I look. So so in the early days, we used to we used to joke with an ultimaker, at least within software, we used to joke that Cura was paid uh, because we were selling these these dongles with it, you know. And these dongles they were made out of plywood, and you know these dongles, if you put them in, then you could really use Cura. And also, oh by the way, these dongles can three D print. Uh, but you know the hardware people didn't really thought that was a very funny joke of us. Okay. Um, but you know that that was, in, in part, that was the main logic of this, right? So, the the entire idea was is that whether or not we're open sourcing it, we're going to need this software. Right. So it's sort of like we're going to invest this money regardless of what we do. Right. Because we need that software, and the software isn't there. So you know, if the software's not there, and you need it. Then you know, you you essentially have one one thing you can do and that's you decide to build it and that's of course also how Kira started right so there eh, there was uh, I also talked a bit about him there was Deity who, who was just fed up and he felt like you know my time is hey, it's worth this amount of effort for me to code something that will make my problem go away so if it's worth at least getting his own problem away at, at the moment that you release it to everybody and it's going to make more problems go away then you know that's that's then a better investment right um so with the case, that's, you know, how Kira started. Um, and of course, even though that when we drifted, of course, away from uh, uh, the maker community to to a certain degree, of course, that stuck. Uh, and it's it's a great way, of course, to also hire software engineers um, because, you know, especially in, in Europe, it's super hard to get software engineers. Um so it's it's also a combination of a marketing uh, a marketing uh, yeah promotional tool I would say it in that sense okay um, and and I, I guess community goodwill too and community goodwill as well and I personally would also um, I personally see some some future in providing uh, custom versions of Cura to other 3D manufacturers. But there has been, uh, at least historically, quite a bit of hesitancy within Ultimaker to do that because people felt that we would be helping our competition. Uh, but my main argument is, is mostly is if you look at the amount of Cura clones already out there, um, they're basically reinventing the wheel in a lot of things, right? So they're setting up their own build systems again, which is, you know, it's pretty tricky to do. They have to learn also, you know, how to actually change things. And then, you know, they, they change it once and then never update. And then, you know, people go like, oh, it looks like you're up, but it works really shitty. So, you know, they're going to do it anyway. So yeah, if you have to take a pick, either they're going to do it and you're not going to get any money or they're going to do it and you're going to get some money out of it. <laughs> I know which one of these two choices makes more sense. But, you know, yeah. hey, I'm, I'm not the business guy. Uh, uh, it's not my decision to make. Although of course I can have some opinions about it, yeah. So what? Let's let's uh, let's put this to the ultimate test. What do you use to print at home with? Yeah, I'm an ultimaker. <laughs> okay, <laughs> of I course. Thought, yeah, I'm, no, no, no. And now I wasn't and, sure if that was part of your compensation package or oh, not. Oh no, no, it's not formally. Uh, but you know, you know, uh, in uh, back in the day pre-COVID, uh, like every every R and D engineer has at least access to one printer, just on their desk. Um, and within Ultimaker, we also regularly had like raffles of um, like printers that we couldn't sell or, you know, like engineering prototypes uh, and that kind of stuff. Uh, and especially with the engineering prototypes, like if you're with R&D, you had a much greater chance to win one because you had, you know, 
uh, engineering prototypes that were in varying degrees of maintenance. And then people with less technical skills, they couldn't sign themselves in for the ones that were that needed a little bit of love to get it to work. So uh, it's a bit, the entire contest is a bit skewed towards people in R&D because, yeah, they can sign themselves in for, you know, 20 draws of the, the lottery, basically. And then whereas the other people could only sign them in cells for five. So, you know, if, if you wait long enough as an R&D engineer, you're going to get lucky. So, yeah. So you need to put in a firmware fuse for when it goes into these auctions. They have to come see you to uh, to unbrick them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I actually have some custom firmware running on it because I unlocked some things that, that, that are normally not unlocked. But I was like, I know where it is. I'm unlocking it. What you going to do? Yeah. Are you uh, are you willing to tell what kind of features? Oh yeah, you're yeah, able yeah. To it's the um, yeah, the multi point bed leveling. You can unlock the multi point bed leveling on the uh, the uh, the ultimaker tree. Oh, yeah. I see. Yeah. So, are you saying that's a that's it's software locked away from customers? Yeah, it is. Oh yeah. damn. Yeah, that, I, I wasn't happy with that decision. That differentiation. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I get it. Like, um, you know, I'm an automotive guy. And um, Volkswagen, for example, yeah. when you buy a remote engine starter, for the most part, you're buying the remote and then yeah. you're paying a, a, a factory tech to go in there and just yeah. enable it in software because it's it's cheaper just to yeah. make the exact same um, multiplex control unit yeah. for every single car. And oh, then just yeah. I mean, it makes sense, but uh, I um, I understand, but... I also don't want to criticize it too much because it makes sense. But on the other hand, it also doesn't feel quite right. Yes. As, and as a consumer, um, that's exactly my thought too. But again, I guess people have to realize where this is. these machines are going. Yeah. And yeah. they're mostly when you're facing business. I mean, the difference between, yeah. you know, 2000 and 4000 or 4000 and 10,000 is not quite the same monetary difference yeah. to, you know, the consumer. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. If you're making money off the machine, I mean, it's just it, it rolls off your back a little bit more. And yeah. on top of that, I mean, it's an expense. It it just you. Yeah. I mean, you don't get you don't people don't people don't realize they think that you can just buy a thousand or ten thousand dollar item and get ten thousand dollars off your taxes. It's not quite how it works. Yeah. But you do. I mean, you do. Um, yeah. You know, win back a, a small portion of that. So it is what it is. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. 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 So we but, don't have to know, agree with it, but it does make sense. Yeah, no, and, and it makes sense. But you know, uh, there there's a number of posts also on the forum that explain you how to do it. So, oh, there we go. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's it's not a big secret. So you know, but I guess like it's, I'll, I'm I'm assuming, I mean, okay, maybe I, this will be a wrong <laughs> assumption, but I'm assuming it runs some sort of variation based on Marlin, or am I yeah. wrong? Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah, well, so, I mean, um. So what we originally used, and I don't know what electronics we use, uh, we use now, but we use them uh, uh, at least the older, at least the Ultimaker three, uh, used an Olimax, which is basically a bit like a Raspberry Pi, and we and it runs Debian, and then it talks to like a motion controller, which is still like an uh, Upmega, the eight bit Marlin version, and then we strip that one down. To uh, to remove a bunch of the bloat, basically like configurations, and then you know, of course, because uh, the display is actually controlled by the the Olimax, the the ARM unit. So then, of course, you know, the eight bit didn't need to do it, so we stripped all of that out. So it's basically a stripped down version of uh, of Marlin. Yeah. And sorry, you're still running it at at eight bit. Yeah. Really. Yeah. 
most of yeah. the, or not most, I won't say most, a yeah. lot of the consumer 3D yeah. printers are now running 32-bit, yeah. which is interesting. Yeah. I mean, eight, eight bits of precision is probably just yeah, fine. For, I mean, for a lot of the things, you, you, you can get away with it pretty well. And it's I think just, it also shows that in quite a lot of cases that people are upgrading things that don't really need upgrading. Oh, I mean, that's all, that's the whole point of being a maker, right? You don't yeah. really need to make that new workbench, no, but it's so much but nicer. <laughs> I, I get it, but then that's sort of like the, the entire point of a home workshop is to upgrade your home workshop. Uh, but I mean, as a company, it's a bit different, right? And uh, it, it kind of reminds me of this, this thing that somebody once told me is that, uh, you know, a good engineer can build a bridge that that you know will will last the ages, but it takes a great engineer to build a bridge that barely stands. Oh yeah, um, and you know it, it's it's it seems like this contradiction, right? That you need to be better to make it to barely stand, but you know to over-engineer something to a certain point or to to over-spec it is actually relatively easy. It's it's oh, knowing where you can take the shortcuts, I guess, is is where uh, where the hard things are, right? Because every, every engineering challenge, and especially I think if if you're if you, if you're on a deadline or on a budget or under any kinds of constraints, um, and within within the cure team is what we call triage, is you have to make decisions. You can't pick up all of the bugs. Uh, so that's why we also call the triage, right? So you have to look at what is the severity of the bug. And then always ask your question, what if I don't? What happens if I don't do anything right now? Um, and then, of course, right. you know, what, what happens if I, if I do try to fix it? How, how much effort will it be? And then you have to make this decision. Yeah, am I going to do it or not? And that's not just in software. I think that's in every part of the machine, right? So every change you want to make, it will involve risks or, or extra resources or whatever. And yeah, you can't always afford to, so you have to make choices. Like, oh, are we going to do it? Well, maybe not. Yeah, my my wife is a professional, or was a professional engineer and yeah. um, a civil engineer, and yeah. she said a good chunk of her program was about dropping costs down. Because yeah. yeah, like you said, I mean, if if I had to design a bridge, it would just be you know one piece solid steel going from yeah. one end of yeah. the river to the other yeah. and it would cost a billion dollars but and it would yeah. last forever but it does take a, a good um yeah. this you know over specking is one thing uh over engineering is often used the wrong way they yeah. we say something is over engineered when it's when it's really tough and solid but really uh over engineering is when it's really like if it was designed to build to, to last a hundred years on yeah. you know the well, 365th day of the tenth of the hundredth year, it's going to crumble. That yeah. is right to the minute engineering. Yeah, yeah but over engineering in software is often that that when you made something way too complicated or way too configurable for what you actually wanted it to do. Okay, right, so, so that, in software it is used the way that people say yeah, colloquially. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so over engineering in software is generally so if you if you were to build like this entire structure and then all you wanted to do is i don't know like like cut bread or something like that right so why did you build this entire you know factory floor filling machine with all kinds of possible extensions on it when you know it only ever had to cut bread right so why why did you build all that it doesn't make any sense uh so yeah true yeah so man we we spent 48 <laughs> minutes talking about cura yeah, I didn't think it was going to go this way, but I guess this is the way it goes. <laughs> yeah, 
Uh, I so, mean, it's 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 a little bit of software, right? So you can talk a lot about it. True. Um, but let's switch gears a little bit and yeah. um, let's talk about some stuff you do in your personal life. Um, yeah. You talked a little bit about LARPing in the green room. Can you yeah. explain to people, first of all, what your uh, what LARPing is? Yeah. And then we can talk about what you've built for it. Yeah. So uh, LARP stands for live action role playing. Uh, and uh, the abbreviation LRP is also used without the action, but you know, there's all kinds of people who are having debates about which is the correct one, and I don't really care all that much. Um, and it's, yeah, as you also mentioned already, it's, it's you know, the, the easiest analogy I can make is like, it's a bit like Dungeons and Dragons, but then live, but that's also really short selling it, right? Because that's just a variant of, of LARP, right? So, and that's the, the the most I think famous one in that sense is you know hey you dress up as a character um, and you play that character for an extended period of time and then generally there's also like a rule system with like you know uh, hey, what kind of magic is there or are there potions and what do they do if you drink them how many hit points do you have and you know how do you repair armor etc uh, etc. Et uh, but there's there's you know other types of it as well where you know you have different settings so where you go I don't know for like a cyberpunk setting or purely a historical setting or you know uh, a pure science fiction um, but there are also more like experimental ones where you know there's even a bit of a cheek and tongue one where you play uh, I think the LARP's called shrimp and you actually have to play that in a in a in a in a pool. And then you play inhabitants of a of an aquarium, um, yeah. And then they they have this entire thing where you know people play shrimp in an aquarium, and then there's an entire there's also a group of shrimp that are very religious, who believe that the great hands that come feed them are some sort of divine entity, etc. I've I've never played that LARP, but I can at least conceptually imagine how how that would be also an interesting experience. Um, I mean, there's all all types of people, so there yeah, needs to be all types of yeah, LARP, yeah, right? Yeah. But there are also LARPs that, you know, really go into, uh, you know, exploring, I, I don't know, like the deep stuff like human nature and uh, uh, love and friendship and betrayal. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's about as varied as, as you know, game design, both on, on you know, tabletop RPGs as, as you know, digital game design or, you know, board game. It's, it's across the spectrum, really. So... Um, yeah, you can do all kinds of uh, pretty crazy stuff uh, there. Yeah. So let's let's start here then. So what setting is your favorite type to LARP in? Oh yeah, well to LARP in, I, I yeah, I I think it's across I, I, across the board really because all of them have something that you can get out of it. Um, but I I I personally also like to play around with tech a lot, uh, right? Because this whole notion of like how how in most cases like if you if you take something like a fantasy setting right and then in most cases if if there is something magical right so say there's like a magical shrine right then often you you have to get like a game master or like a referee there and then you know you have to say like oh yeah i cast this spell on the thing and then you know the game master says oh okay so if you use that spell then you know this is what you find and then you can say oh but i start looking for i don't know how the ener energy flows go and then you know, that's sort of like the skill challenge that you have, right? Asking the right questions, understanding what's being said to you. But it does kind of break that immersion that you're having, right? Because then you're no longer 
playing to be a mage, you're explaining to somebody who's sitting next to you what your character's doing, and it kind of also breaks the moment, right? Because all the people that are looking at you see you just talking to, you know, a referee. And, you know, that's also the part, of course, where, you know, a bit of technology and a bit of clever engineering can come in. Because in quite a lot of cases, you know, you, you kind of also want the magic to follow certain rules, right? So if, if something happens, something else needs to happen. Uh, and that's that's where the real cool stuff comes up, right? So uh, yeah, where you can play around with like RFID tags and then you hide them in some sort of magical crystal or something. And then, you know, every time you put the magical crystal on the altar, suddenly the crystal starts glowing. Um, and that's also the real fun part in that is because then uh, especially because if people are very used to you know the old way of doing it where you had to get a referee to do something and then suddenly you can just give them an object and then he asks, yeah what does it do and it's like i don't know go find out go try something yeah don't you need to be there nope just do something and then you can also see when you know the first time that it actually does something you know as if by magic because they don't realize that there's actually technology in there uh, there's this great sense of wonder with these people that they see that it actually does something, yeah, as if by magic, right? Yeah. So, is this is this something that you have built? Have you built yeah. some some yeah, of these quote unquote I've, magic I've, items? I've built stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I, I think one of my one of one of my uh, favorites. Oh man, it's like having to pick favorites uh, as a parent, right? But um, <laughs> one of the ones that that I, I probably spent the most blood, sweat, and tears on. And that was actually also on a LARP. So far, has been um, is um, uh, 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 yeah. So for those of you who are familiar with uh, the Great Sultan, is this sort of this 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 uh, uh, robot um, fortune teller? Fortune teller, right? So it's this robot fortune teller, and it's in this glass box, and then it's like the torso of a fortune teller, and then you could could put a coin in there. And then it, it, it would do like this potion and its eye glows and you get some ominous sound and it prints out this card where it, it predicts your future. Um, and at a certain point, we were asked for uh, a LARP event that was set during the prohibition uh, in America to make a machine like that. And um, it, the idea would also be that, you know, the thing was actually haunted and that it would actually be able to... Um, to truly predict the future, right? Or, or at least predict, you know, nefarious things. And, you know, the original thing that, you know, these people who came to us, who who blessed their hearts, made a great LARP, but knew nothing about the technology needed. The original pitch was really, yeah, yeah, we need like this under the hood. We want this robot arm to pick up the right card and then deposit it. And it was like, we were like, okay, you know, stop right there. Let, let us trouble ourselves uh, about the actual you know the actual solution you just tell us what you want to achieve they were like yeah, yeah okay we just want a creepy robot that spits out predictions we were like cool cool, cool. we can make that work um we also got this ridiculously low budget of i think like 150 euros which holy crap that's nothing yeah that is <laughs> that's nothing. nothing and and we built like a robot with like five or six degrees of freedom with it um because we were just like dumpster diving and, you know, raiding because, you know, we had still had a bunch of servos left and we built this creepy ass robot doll uh, in, in like a cupboard that we got from like a flea market and all kinds of stuff. And it, so we had this entire moving robot with like a mechanical keyboard in front where we also had like laser cut wooden 
wooden and brass uh, uh, keys on it. And then the thing that we finally came up with is that it would be a machine where they could walk up to and then they could type a name in it. And then, you know, once they press enter, the machine would do its little dance and it would spit out a card. Uh, but we just hit like, uh, you know, the standard HP uh, cheap-ass uh, 30 euro printers underneath it. And with a bit of clever routing, we could actually get the card out of it. And we already printed the backside of those cards with tarot cards. And that was also like a red herring because we couldn't actually control what the back end of the throw cards were. But we figured, look, it's the row. Everybody's going to read anything in it. It doesn't really matter what card you put on the back. Just make it random. People will, will make something out of it themselves. And what the machine would actually do is if you type a name in, if it recognized your name, it would check in the database and then figure out if, uh, if, if it had a prediction for you. And depending on what escalation level the machine was on, it would start spitting out more and more nefarious things about the past or potential future of that person. And we were able to write all of those things because we knew what all of... Because they were pre-written or at least uh, to a certain degree pre-written characters because we knew all their backgrounds. So we could basically use that to sort of draw all of the, uh, the old skeletons out of their closet. Um, and yeah, that, that was an amazing success because the first time people thought that it was just a still doll. So the first time it moved, uh, because it also had this horrible servo whine in it that we managed to be able to sort of hide a little bit with the wood creaking when it was moving. So the first time that people started typing in it and they didn't realize it was an actual moving machine because we managed to hide it so well. So they typed something in and then we had like 15 to 20 people who just collectively gasped and took a step back as this machine was sort of cackling and and printing out a little card uh and that was a really great moment for for all that work to uh to uh to come to that yeah that sounds incredible yeah and I, you were we there to so see much unreasonable time on this it's like oh, 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 oh we spent so much time on getting that to work i think that cost me easily like months at the end of my life to stress to get that thing done in time but I still think it's worth it. Yeah. And you were there to see it uh, yeah, yeah. like actuate for the first time or, or yeah, whatever? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, because we were also playing like a, a non-player character on that, that LARP, uh, which is also what we generally tend to do if we, if we build a prop for a LARP to that extent because, you know, uh, you know, things can and will fail. So we then also try to sort of invent roles that, that give you sort of like an alibi to, to work on... The thing right so if it's broken you know out of the game because i don't know a bug or a loose wire or i don't know faulty uh, you know power supply if if you have like an in-game sort of alibi to work on it 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 doesn't break character right because then it's also the character is trying to fix it uh and that also you know sort of adds to the immersion right so and i think that's also a really interesting part about building these things for larp is because then you you also have to think about how are you gonna do the smoke and mirrors, right? How how are you gonna get away with a really cheap trick and make it look as if it's something so much bigger than it actually is? Because yeah, at the end, of course, we could reveal how we did it. And then even a lot of engineers that were in, in the LARP themselves, they were like flabbergasted with sort of the, the tricks we pulled to make it look way cooler than it really was. So it's it's a bit like stage magic, I think, as well, right? 
Sort yeah, of. it's got to be. If yeah. it's all in presentation. Yeah, yeah. So presentation is a, is a really important part of it. And uh, yeah, that's also interesting. And we also put like super over-engineered stuff in it as well. So it had like a Wi-Fi interface with also like an admin panel where, you know, the, the game masters could also control the thing remotely and then also like add custom cards to it. So if they saw a player standing there, they could suddenly make it start spitting out cards, even though that they didn't activate it and all kinds of weird shit like that. Um, yeah. So does this thing still live or yeah, it still lives? Like it's, it's yeah. So I'm, I'm doing this together with, uh, with my twin brother and, and we couldn't, we could, we couldn't make ourselves throw it away. That's it. In all honesty. <laughs> yeah. But we you should, uh, yeah. you should ask a bar or something if you can, uh, yeah, you can but put it's, it on it's, display. It's also really finicky, right? It, it oh, needs, yeah, it's, it's not really made it can run for a certain amount of time like without anybody sort of giving it some proper love and care but i think this is also part like the we knew that the first time we built it it had to last exactly three days <laughs> and then you know with the, the complexity of the task that we set ourselves you just want to try and uh yeah spend as little time uh, as possible on the things that are not really needed and as much time as possible on the things that have an impact so yeah that's uh that's really impressive that you built something that uh yeah. that complex and in fact i'll put in the description below the link to the facebook group where people can actually see this thing i don't think you have any videos on there i was going yeah, through no it they are quickly. there are there are okay yeah, excellent. Yeah, yeah of the machine itself as well and we were also actually able to rent it out a few times towards other larps as well uh so it, it's been on like three three larps right now three runs at least yeah well, that's awesome. So I hope yeah. people will go into the description and go check it out because um, I've seen pictures of it. I didn't know there was video, but um, yeah. I've seen pictures. So I'm thoroughly impressed that yeah. it does what, what you say it does. It's pretty nuts. Yeah. For instance, also the mask that we use for if people are actually going to look at it, it's just a cheap Halloween mask that we bought for three euros, I think. And we just painted it to make it look like that. And that's I mean, also the smoke and mirror. People actually thought that we spent all this time in in getting like a custom cost mold mask and then it's just <laughs> a cheap halloween mask that we found in a store because actually you found the mask first and then we decided to make this an old lady because we thought the mask was so cool <laughs> and i mean it's kind of disingenuous that it's 150 euro it might have been yeah. 150 euro in parts which is oh, not uh, even that no 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 it's it's 150 euro in parts that we bought new <laughs> yeah there we go yeah. that makes more sense yeah 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 yeah. Because, um, yeah, it looks, I mean, it looks like a million bucks. It looks awesome. Yeah. yeah. And Facebook is saying I have to log in. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, that's that's not going to happen. I don't I do not do Facebook. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, very impressive stuff. Um, like, that's, that's incredible. I, I wish I had those kinds of uh, skills and that kind of drive to build something like that. I've always wanted to make some sort of, um, you know, fancy... Um, mo like a movable, like remote control skeleton type thing yeah, for yeah, Halloween, yeah. but um, it's just it's not it's not going to happen in the near future. But uh, at some point, it's I mean, it's actually crap out of people. it was surprisingly easy to to build the actuation actually. Yeah, just using uh, regular yeah. RC servos, I assume. <laughs> yeah, 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 and and we actually had rope running through the the screen itself because in game it was also like. Um, this machine is this, this clockwork automaton that was made then. And we actually, we were like, oh, how are we going to do this without 
having like a tiny rope clearly moving the arms. And we were like, you know what? No, 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 that's, that's not a bug. That's a feature, right? If it looks like, you know, it's actually a rope that's moving the hands, that makes actually a lot more sense because that's, you know, how somebody without, you know, actual servo engines and, you know, pistons and all the whole shebang would probably have also done it in that time. So, yeah. <laughs> so it ended up, yeah, it ended up as part of the package. Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually, the system is, uh, so it, it's an arm that can swivel and then we could, could also pull the rope up. So that's how we got an, an extraordinary amount of, of you know, uh, uh, freedom where, you know, the robot could move its hands because it can move a hand up and down and then sort of left and right. But then because of that, you got this really cool swinging motion. And because the, uh, the elbows were also, uh, they could articulate, but not automatically. But because of the arms could move, you got this very natural motion, uh, even though that there, it was actually only two motors doing it. Again, that's, uh, tricks. <laughs> that's really cool. You know, I yeah. think if you'd ever get the 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 chance to, I think a, a nice YouTube video showing the mechanics behind and what your yeah. your thought process behind it, I think I think could be really nice to see. And yeah. you know, you'd probably get you know tens of thousands of views on a video like that. Yeah. At least I would promote it. So <laughs> yeah. There's that. Yeah. So and yeah, we made a whole bunch of props in 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 this ballpark and and our current project, which unfortunately has been taking for the past three years now, is a is a LARP called uh, Mission Together, uh, and that's a, a big LARP in Spain where where the uh, yeah the the the, the people uh, doing all the the prop building, um, and we're luckily we also have a lot bigger budget, uh, and there yeah we're also going to build like a space simulator and like a, a med bay. And a science scanner uh, uh, with all kinds of crazy, like so, uh, adding RFID scanners to it, and then also having like valves that you can manipulate, and then there's also things in the base change, and that you also have to reroute like sort of fluids throughout the base to do cooling and, and heating up stuff. But uh, yeah, that sounds like quite the project. Like it is, it is, and and we, I think. Were it not for Corona, we would have not been able to make, I think, even like 30% of the stuff that we wanted. So Corona, in that sense, has been a bit of a blessing in disguise. Yeah. And that's because you more have time. more yeah. time, less, yeah. so less work to do, basically. Well, the same amount of work, but more time to actually do it. Because, yeah, we've had to postpone it a few times. Because it's also an international LARP. So there's going to be people from all across the world that are going there specifically to Spain to participate there. Um, and then, of course, yeah, the past few years, the, you know, even though that in some cases there was sort of this, this sort of uh, this, this calm in the storm, then, yeah, in a lot of cases, then not everybody could, could go there or it was super unclear. And then, you know, in some cases, other people could get stuck and then be in a quarantine in a, in a foreign country or, you know, all kinds of bullshit. Uh, so, yeah, we had to postpone it for two times already so yeah damn yeah really puts a damper on things i'm lucky corona didn't affect me too too much it like it like i'm mostly unemployed at the moment because my semester got pushed back but other than that i mean the wife and i we don't go anywhere so it doesn't really doesn't it didn't affect us but yeah it, it sucks that a lot of people got affected in affected in very negative ways yeah 
I mean, aside from me catching COVID, I guess that was not good either. Yeah, I've I've been uh, I've been lucky enough to at least, uh, to my knowledge, be able to dodge it. But uh, if I got it, I didn't notice it, which is entirely possible. But yeah, yeah I wouldn't recommend going to get it because no, 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 oh no, <laughs> it's no, been well I got over. vaccinated and boosted at the exact moment when I was able to. <laughs> yeah, I got vaccinated when I could. I was I was basically with the boosters became available here at the end of December for people my age and in, in yeah. the in, in my early 30s yeah and um that's when I got COVID it was around that time oh and yeah so it's been some of my regular listeners know this but it's been two months now and I still have that Ooh. long COVID symptoms Ooh. so yeah every once in a while I'm out of breath but it's been getting better and better I think so yeah. that's good but I know there there's some people who are still like they they're out of breath going up the stairs uh, up to six months after their infection. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know some people from LARP who also got long COVID and he, I think he, he got it even in like the first wave. So that's almost two years ago and he's still struggling with some health issues. That's brutal. Like I, I, that's he's why like I really dirty or something. Right. So he, and he wasn't like, I don't know, like he didn't have any other health issues until that moment. Yeah, it's it's brutal. That's why I don't really agree with those people that say, "Who cares? You're going to survive it." Yeah, but it's like, what kind of life are you going to live after you survive it? Like, how about that? Yeah, hey, if uh, one out of a hundred M and M's is uh, poisonous, I wouldn't buy any M and M's. I wouldn't buy them. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, listen, we're um, we're already at an hour and ten, <laughs> and I yeah. usually throw a question to every one of my guests. Can I throw you that question? Yeah, sure. All right, so the question goes, you get a government grant to start the business of your dreams. It does not have to be profitable, but it does have to provide either a service or a product. Uh What kind of business would you start? Yeah, I think that's fairly easy for me because uh, this is a joke I've been making all along. You know, Uh, what I really want to make is a fire-breathing T-Rex, like a mechanical one. So that's technically a product. It is, yep. yeah. So and it doesn't matter. I, I the would, show is a service too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I think that would be really cool. Uh, but that's pretty much also what I've been doing with frivolous engineering, right? It's it's making these kind of props to, I don't know. I've, I've always found that sort of this uh, sense of, I always enjoyed inspiring a sense of amazement in people. Um, and that's also what I, I try to do with, with, you know, those those props and those, especially, you know, the technical props that I make. Uh, it's not just about making them look good, but also make people go like, wow, how did that work? And then sort of being so very smug about it, if you can explain that sort of the magic was actually really simple. So, yeah. So I, you'd be building yeah. one of these or like I don't know, infinite? at least one, because, you know, it's pro- it's a lot of work. I'm I'm very bad at estimating how long things take, but I've learned to not really trust my... Uh, my sort of initial gut feeling where it says, how hard can it be? <laughs> and then I've learned, well, <laughs> I, I'm, I, I'm not daring to say that I'm an adult adult now in that sense, even though that, you know, I've been an adult for a long time now, but uh, <laughs> I feel like grown up a little bit since then. But yeah, something like that, sort of like, I don't know, like robots or something in like, uh, yeah, or technological. I would definitely still continue to do engineering. And then also, you know, probably something that would touch multiple aspects of engineering. Because uh, even though that I'm like very much specialized as a software engineer, 
uh, I really enjoy the, the part where uh, the area where sort of, you know, technologies come together. And that's also what is so incredibly interesting about, you know, 3D printing and robotics and uh, all that kind of stuff. That's what makers are all about. I mean, the uh, interdisciplinary stuff yeah. is is the best thing. Like, for example, I am only actually, I would consider myself actually very well skilled in one thing. And that's, uh, I'm an automotive technician. I'm a mechanic yeah, yeah, by yeah. trade. I've yeah. been doing that for nearly 16 years now. And that is the one thing I would say I am an expert in. But everything else is just dabbling and messing with and and i i love that i'm i'm cool with that i don't have to be an expert in everything in fact i regret a little bit being an expert in in auto mechanics i would rather trade you know um 10 years of that knowledge for you know two years of knowledge of you know five other things but this is what's great about making is that you can just go and explore your own sort of skills and build skills and talk to people and gather skills from elsewhere it's it's awesome but that's i still think that's why a lot of the interesting stuff is there because um if you also look at like sort of where now all the and i don't want to you know advocate uh patents because i think patents are bad but unfortunately as a company you have to participate um if you look at like a lot of the patents that in most fields are coming out now and also in 3D printing and also, you know, the patents that, that Ultimaker got and is getting, um, most of them are actually where at least one field touches another. And in most cases, it's actually where multiple fields touch each other. And it's also, it's generally then also the people that are, that have a broader skill set. So generally the, the, the people with a T-shaped skill set. Right, so a specialization in one thing and then reasonable or working knowledge in you know the, the adjacent uh, skill sets, those tend to be the people that can then work very well with other people that have a different D-shaped uh, skill set. And then those people, that those can, they can actually find solutions to problems that we have right now. And in almost all cases, they're in this area where these two you know, sort of more traditional fields touch each other. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, I, I've come up with the analogy recently that um, like a river is the most interesting when it intersects with another body of water. So yeah. like the, you'll, you'll have like a, a river uh, fe feeding into a lake, for example, and at the boundary of those two, that's where the fishermen find the fish. That's where the ecologists yeah. find the most interesting vegetation. That is where things happen when, when, um, two homogenous things start mixing, then that's where that's where yeah. all the interest is, and that's the same thing for the maker movement. I yeah. mean, perspectives are important, and skills are important, and all this that's, stuff is important. That's also why I really miss the maker fairs because I I I would just love walking around them and just randomly go over and then see this this super excited person with their own hobby projects, and then just talk about them with you know whatever weird and potentially unrelated sort of experiences or skill sets that i have and then yeah quite often you also had these these sort of magical epiphanies that uh would otherwise not have happened yeah yeah that's very true and i think you can even tell uh which companies are are, are more innovative by the 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 types of skills they hire for right like if you look at, um, I don't know if you watch uh, Linus Tech Tips on YouTube at all. No, no. 
but uh, he's basically he's a tech company. They started in tech reviews, mm-hmm. but at this moment they are hiring all sorts of people. They're hiring writers. They're hiring uh, people who are good at machining. They're hiring electronics people. They're hiring all sorts of people because they said like if they want to grow, they need to have interdisciplinary stuff right yeah. it can't be you can't you can't just be into tech and make tech videos you need a, an angle on stuff yeah which is what the those other people are for basically it's also the hardest thing to do right that's very true and i think 100%. that's also why a lot of companies don't do it because it's really easy to explain what you are and what you do if you say oh, i'm a software engineer oh well what do you do i build software right but if you're then sort of the, uh, I can do a little bit of everything, what do you say? Right? It's, it's, yeah, I, it's... I, yeah, I had to go through that very recently because I was uh, applying to work uh, teaching high schools. Yeah. And I'm like, so yeah, I'm a professional mechanic, but yeah. I've got this YouTube channel, which I deal <laughs> with electronics. I deal with, um, you know, yeah. I make uh, PCBs. I get them sent off to be... Um, made. I deal with remote control vehicles. I deal with uh, 3D printing. I deal with CAD design, like and, all sorts of things. why so, were you worried about not being able to, to design a robot if that's your skill set? <laughs> well, because again, because it's like surface knowledge. The problem is that I know where my skills lack. Oh, yeah, right? yeah. But but you now make the, misassum- you make the wrong assumption that I knew when I started. This, this is true. I did assume that. I didn't. That. <laughs> you're, you're, you know what? You're absolutely right for calling me out on that because this is the same thing that my viewers do to me. They yeah. see my videos and they assume I knew everything to start with, but they don't see. I mean, they, I try to explain, but it's hard to explain the struggle yeah. it takes to to make it from point A to point B. Yeah. So you're absolutely right on that. Yeah. So yeah, the only thing that me and my brother ever do is that we have a flowchart on whose problem it is. So it's basically if you can touch it, it's his problem. And if you can't touch it, it's my problem because nice. my specialization is in software and his is more in, into hardware. Um, but yeah, other than that, I mean, and even there, it's quite often that he was able to help me with certain software problems because I was just thinking too difficult, right? I was like, oh, but it's going to be really hard. And he could just say, yeah, but... You know, so we can challenge each other on like where to use the smoke and mirrors or where there's a shortcut, and then you're yeah you're over you're overthinking it, right? Uh, even though that yeah. the other one is technically the specialist, <laughs> or you know not even technically actually the specialist, yeah. sort of does it for a living. Yeah, sort of a little you know? company you may have heard of called <laughs> Ultimaker. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Well, yeah, that's very true, and. Um, yeah, so maybe I should challenge myself to to build a little a little something something, but um, it'll yeah, be a hey, long term thing. If you if you ever need some projects, I I've got enough LARP events that one stuff builds. Don't you worry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean I'm and I'm also a big fan of open source. Pretty much everything I've designed, I've yeah. put the uh, the stuff online for yeah. free. Everyone can use it. I, you know. I could probably make a couple extra dollars per month by uh, selling designs, yeah. maybe, or selling finished products, maybe. But I, to me, but, it's not worth it. But f- finished products, I think, is also s- somewhat different, right? I mean, yeah, of course. It, no, it's no, no, different. but I mean, uh, I'm I'm mostly more of a fan of, of selling like atoms than I am of selling bits. Okay, I fair mean, enough. And so, because bits is basically like it didn't 
like whether or not you copy it, it's no skin off my back, right? Correct. Yeah, it Whereas, doesn't destroy the original. Yeah, I it's mean, not actually yeah. theft. <laughs> kind of weird well, thing. It depends on how you argue it, of course. But I mean, yeah, yeah that's also the kind of thing. On I, I guess it's also because this is how Kira started, right? It, it started with this notion of like huh? one person was like, "Yeah, it's worth it to spend the time on it to fix my problem." So everyone's else's problem if it gets fixed that's yeah great right that's that's like the cherry on top of the sunday yeah absolutely yeah i i mean i guess um even well yeah i mean because if i I guess i meant if i started selling physical goods then it would be uh, detrimental to have the how-to instructions online and all the files and stuff but i guess even not even because a friend of mine, um, another maker, yeah. he he has a free open source or I don't know if it's open source, but user spice anyways. It's yeah. a it's an online um, user uh, management software, mm-hmm. and he says almost all of his business has come from giving that software away for free because yeah. people say, "Yeah, you've got great software, but you're probably better at it than me." So here, do you want some money and you can deal yeah, with it? Yeah, but that's also the same as what Adafruit does and does, you know, brilliantly, right? Like, yeah, that's very true. They, I, and I've bought stuff from them because I saw a really cool tutorial and I was like, yeah, but they have bills of material just, you know, in the instruction and I just can click the links and then they did all that effort to, to write this really cool guide for me. So why wouldn't I buy it from them? Yeah, that's a good point. It's a very good point. So I guess uh, I guess in the end, it's time for me to build my uh, animatronic skeleton then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll see how it turns out. But um, for now, though, we are flush out of time. Do you have any uh, closing thoughts that you want to tell people? Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, we're launching uh, the Cura 5.0 beta soon-ish in, in, in April is the, the planning. So uh, you could do me and uh, the rest of the maker community a favor by uh, trying it out. And of course, not just the 5.0 beta, but uh, keep on trying it because, uh, yeah, we fundamentally redid the, the slicing algorithm. And uh, to toot my own horn a little bit, that's uh, it's it's like a massive leap forward in uh, in 3D printing because, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's not just new to the industry. The, the way that we're doing it is, is new to the world. And, uh, and not even the big guys like uh, Stratasys and stuff like that, uh, you know, have this. So, uh, yeah, I'm really excited about that. That's really neat. And uh, where can people find you personally? Do you want them to go to your Twitter, to your Facebook? What is it? Uh, yeah, so, yeah, GitHub, uh, Twitter, uh, all of these things uh, work. And then I will put all the links in the description. And if everyone is watching on YouTube, they have been on the background the whole time with my spinning logo that uh, some people are just now realizing that the logo spins as the the episode (laughs) goes on. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I think I saw it because I clicked through one of your episodes and then it's really easy to see (laughs) because then you're clicking through it and it's like, oh, it changed. Yeah. So I want to thank you so much for uh, joining me today. I know, um, you know, Taking your t- taking some time out is not uh, obvious for everyone, so I want to thank you for taking some time to speak to uh, me and my audience. And yeah. I hope that uh, people will go and check out your stuff because it. I'm not like I'm not saying this to butter you up because you're on the podcast. It is very <laughs> impressive stuff, and um, I want to thank you for the hard work you do on yeah. um, Cura. I mean, 
you probably do hard work on Ultimaker <laughs> stuff too, but I don't really yeah. use that. I use Kira. Yeah, well, I mean, most of the stuff I do for Ultimaker is working on Kira. Yeah. There we go. And uh, locking out features. <laughs> <laughs> kidding. Obviously yeah, yeah, kidding. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. And I hope you guys will go check out his stuff. And uh, I hope to see you guys in the comment section uh, letting James know what's going on. Yeah. Thanks for listening. It was a pleasure to be here.